This episode of Goodwill Hunters is brought to you by The Intrepid Group, the company making travel a genuine force for good. As you know, in this pod, we talk a lot about how to partner with and have a positive impact on communities all over the world. Having spent the past eight years travelling through some of the most spectacular and challenging countries, I know for sure tourism is one of the greatest forces for good, when done properly. Intrepid is a certified B Corp, specialising in sustainable small group travel, offering over 2,700 trips through four tour-operator brands. I've done an Intrepid tour in Myanmar, and I can tell you they deliver on their commitment to responsible tourism. They are committed to working with local guides, to reducing their environmental footprint and giving back to the people and places they visit. Visit intrepidgroup.travel and change the way you see the world. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. And welcome to episode 38 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, I'm very excited to be chatting to Julia Newtonhouse. Julia is a globally acknowledged leader, social innovator, and advocate for women's empowerment. During her nine years as CEO of Care Australia, Julia drove the case for gender equality and women's empowerment across complex political and social environments in the 23 countries in which Care worked. Julia is now the CEO of Investing in Women, which is, uh, I will add, one of my favourite aid programs. Um, It's a a fascinating program that I'm looking forward to unpacking with Julia. And uh, as I said to Julia before the show, she is one of our most requested guests. So I'm very happy to be having this conversation. So thank you for being on the show, Julia. It's my pleasure, Rachel. Thank you for this opportunity. Okay, so I've um, I've not gone into too much detail with your bio there, particularly not around investing in women. So could you start off by telling us um, what investing in women is and um, how long you've been there and how you got involved? Sure. Investing in women um, is an Australian government-funded program, part of the Australian government's economic partnerships with ASEAN, We work in um, the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam and Myanmar on women's economic empowerment. But our work is mostly with the private sector. And I know that when you talk about women's economic empowerment with most people in government in the region, in civil society, you know, they immediately think about helping women out of poverty. They think of microfinance. But actually, we're... You know, um, women's lack of economic opportunity um, comes from the structural barriers that women face due to gender discrimination. And and these barriers go far beyond um, um, women in some of the most difficult circumstances. I mean, frankly, they face women in every sphere of life. And so 
We um, the program was designed, and that wasn't clearly wasn't my bright idea, but I think it is a very new and innovative um, program to really focus on um, the private sector uh, in a couple of different ways. So. We're supporting business coalitions in each of those four countries where, you know, there's a lot of groundwork to identify businesses that acknowledged and recognised the value of uh, gender equality within businesses. And I think there's globally now so much evidence that companies that have um, uh, significant numbers of women and men are more gender diverse um, in their senior management on their boards and throughout those companies have um, better returns, they're more innovative, um, they're better places to work, they're more, you know, staff are, you, you know, generally see those as very positive attributes. So there's good returns from being a gender equal workplace. So we've been working with those businesses now through the development of business coalitions, through a lot of tools to help analyse gender equality in business and then support companies taking a journey towards greater gender equality. That's one part of what we do. Another part is recognising that um, women entrepreneurs face greater barriers towards getting finance for their um, uh, small and growing companies. You know, there's, there's quite a lot of different aid programs that work with women entrepreneurs. We decided to, that really the gap was in the finance sector because actually you can get Women entrepreneurs, there's many good ones out there already. Um, and, of course, entrepreneurs generally can always do with some more help. But how about changing the finance sector to adopt, to recognise the gender bias that exists within the finance sector, um, to shift that and to make finance more available to women entrepreneurs? But we're, you know, I've said the whole finance sector, we are only working with impact investors. Um in, in the program. We also had a, a small program which um, was about working with governments where regulations were an issue. Um, and we've done some interesting work in, in Vietnam and the Philippines in that. But um, that's actually now we've just gone into phase two of investing in women and that part has been um, shifted, really shifted into a different spot in the program. Uh, and the, the final part of what we do is working to shift gender norms that limit women's participation in economic opportunities. Um, and we've done, I think, some, you know, working with some traditional partners in that space, some really non-traditional partners in uh, trying to tackle uh, gender norms. So that's not quite a nutshell, Rachel, but that <laughs> in a reasonably quick space of time is an overview of the program. It's um, a seven-year program across these four countries, and we've just completed three and a bit years, which was phase one. And as of July the 1st, we've started four-year phase two. Well, congratulations on that. 
that's really exciting um, that you're moving into phase two. And thank you for such a rich explanation. I was frantically taking notes as you were talking there. <laughs> There's a lot there for us to discuss. Um, I think in keeping with our recent episodes, though, to frame investing in women in sort of the, the people-centric way, why, why is this important for women in the region? Like, has anything happened that's really demonstrated to you? And I imagine millions of things have happened. But, but why is this, uh, why is investing in women an important step for women and men in the region? As ASEAN countries have industrialised and as their economies have shifted from agriculture into manufacturing and services, Formal work, and we are, are you know, the, the program focuses on formal um, work, not informal work, and clearly there's um, big issues in both. But formal work has become, you know, the future for millions and millions of people across this region. How they're treated at work, what opportunities they have, um, is fundamental to the future of those populations. And the, the evidence is clear. You know, I talked about the business benefits of um, gender equality. It's actually an approach for it's – it's a competitive advantage. Companies that adopt gender equality build in a competitive advantage. So do economies. There's been a lot of work about – the potential boost to the Australian economy, to the economies of ASEAN globally, to our economies, if we can get better at gender equality. Um, and growth is stronger, but it's more inclusive um, when we do it better. And I, you know, gender inequality, I mean, gender discrimination is the most pervasive type of discrimination in the world today, it's something I'm passionate about. It's a human rights issue, but clearly it's an issue of smart economics as well. Yeah, that's a great summary. So I, I think what you've touched on there is that there are a myriad of both structural and regulatory barriers which prevent women's full economic participation in the formal workforce. And um, to my knowledge, the structural and regulatory barriers that exist really differ between countries. And investing in women is working across across four countries. So I'm interested in how how have you had to tailor the program to the four different contexts, or is there anything that's common across um, all four? So um, particularly the component where we're working with gender norms, um, that is, you know, we really do um, only work through partners because, um, you know, these are personal um, issues, complex issues, often quite emotional issues about how people view their role in society and how societies judge us for um, how we do or don't ad adopt gender norms. So really... Our approach in that 
area of, of working with partners to shift gender norms has exactly been that, to localise it with local partners who are able to navigate um, the complex uh, space that is how each culture and society considers um, gender. Of course, also working with business coalitions, those business coalitions are made up of local businesses. They're, they're staffed. We're funding a small secretariat staff for each of the business coalitions. They're staffed by um, uh, um, local people um, bringing their own perspectives on this. We're bringing some global tools. And I think what we're seeing in bringing those global tools into the region is that they absolutely need to be adapted and adopted to um, the local context to um, to really be fully effective. But I, I, I um, so yeah, we do absolutely have to be very conscious of the the local differences. And you talked about, um, you know. Um, regulatory um, change. I think. You know, in um, some kind, of, you know, legislation can be gender transformative. Very little legislation is. Um, most legislation in the region does prohibit discrimination on the basis of gender. Um, that's not entirely true, but all these countries have um, acceded to CEDAW, for example. So, you know, these, these countries have all throughout their, their um, you know, legislative environments considered gender discrimination. And there isn't um, necessarily, there, there was in Vietnam, and that's something we did do some work on, some overt discrimination against women, often hidden as, you know, this is protecting women because they are weaker than men and need to be protected. Um, so working through that and, and um, removing those barriers um, is important. But it's, um, you know, I, I really feel that uh, very little legislation is gender transformative, that, you know, things that um, promote, you know, requiring equal maternity and paternity leave, for example, is gender transformative because it really shifts um, men's roles in relation to caring and homework. Um, but the majority just, you know, dis, um, disallows discrimination. So really we feel that there's only so, you know, legislation will only go so far. And in these sorts of areas that are really about personal belief, it's so important to open up that space to discuss those personal beliefs and to open up a conversation on where those personal beliefs are um, potentially harmful and and to ask people to consider those beliefs from a from different perspectives. And I think that's actually the conversation that's so incredibly important going forward. Oh, I agree. And I think you made a really interesting statement there that um, very little legislation is actually gender transformative. And I think that being the case, it um, well, it brings to question the role of government. Where do you sit on that? Like what's the role of government versus the role of the private sector in catalyzing the gender transformations? You know, it depends a bit on to what extent different parts of um, uh, 
different parts of the of our society are controlled by government so um you know, where there's a free and open press and people um, are able to um, speak their mind. In some of the countries where where we work, um, the government takes a stronger hand in media, for example, then obviously the images, the articles that how gender is portrayed as being is being is something that the government takes a strong interest in, then government is playing a, a, a critical role. Um, the private sector has a massive role in this space because um, you know, we spend for those of us, and it is a growing percentage across the region who spend a significant part of every day in the formal workplace. What happens there has a big impact on us. So we have billions of people um, around the world and hundreds of millions across the region who um, are who go to work every day, and um, and if work reinforces gender stereotypes and a lot of work does you know I have had senior business people many many senior business people um, you know talk very frankly about oh well you know women are so good at the detail I always put women in the finance area and but men you know they they're outgoing and they're competitive so we want our sales team to be made up of men you know those sorts of stereotypes workplaces can reinforce them or not and so um you know, I think it's um, the the private sector can has been a massive force for social change across Southeast Asia as young women left their villages and came to work in garment factories across the region, as um, you know, young men left the the region and came to work in um, in construction sites. Um, you, you, you know. This changed life radically. Um, and so clearly that next step of supporting greater gender equality and leveraging the business and economic benefits and the personal benefits that, that come from, you know, having less rigid stereotypes, less limiting stereotypes – is, an, is a huge role that um, the, the private sector um, can play and, and in some and many instances is playing. Definitely. And so you've mentioned that investing in women works specifically with the formal sector. So I think it might be good, um, I assume our listeners already understand um, what we mean when we say formal versus informal sector work, but it, it might be good just to distinguish the difference between the two and and also, I think I think we have to acknowledge the significance of the informal sector um, throughout a lot of Asia, but also note that, as you've said, an increasing number of people are moving into formal sector roles. Um, so, can you can you comment on why investing in women is specifically focused on the formal sector and and what we mean when we say that? Well, we're um, so the formal sector are registered businesses who are, you know, registered with the government, paying their taxes, and um, you know, I'm not sure I've got a, a, um, a you know formal definition of the formal sector, but it is essentially um, 
businesses who are properly, who are fully registered and comply with government legislation. The informal sector are people who are setting up shop in their backyard, not registered, do whatever they like, make a bit of money on the side, don't declare it. And obviously, um, you know, a lot of um, things like petty traders on the street or people who cook food at home and then come take it into the city and sell it. They're informal workers and they're not, you know, and and the formal sector is protected by a lot of legislation. So workers in the formal sector are protected by legislation and and, and the the informal sector is largely um, beyond the reach of government um, unless they, you know, who has the capacity to police all these little own account workers and what's in it. So, you know, there's not, formal OHS legislation or other legislation that would um, deal with the person who's hiring, you know, their their cousin and their neighbour in the backyard to um, to run a small business. Why the formal sector? Um, because they're the leaders, and this is where this is where the the big economic benefits will start. But um, I also think they'll be the champions, the leaders of um, progress in this area. Um, And the way we're working in this particular area of working with the private sector, it's really much more cost effective for us to work with large employers um, where we can reach really hundreds of thousands of people rather than trying to reach millions of companies who employ two or three people. So it's it's a cost efficiency thing, it's a practicality thing. These, you know, we are encouraging companies to adopt formal policies around, you know, different aspects of, of work like flexible work, like equal pay. I um, this is just a practical for large formal sector employers. It's much less practical in um, the informal sector or even with SMEs. We do through our impact investing work where the, we're supporting impact investors to invest in women entrepreneurs. We are seeing that that leads, and indeed our own MEL team, our monitoring and evaluation team, is having conversations with the female entrepreneurs on gender, and that does lead to a lot of reflection on gender and gender within their businesses. Um, But the focus of gender equality in the workplace is really with large employers and formal sector employers. Yeah, and you've mentioned uh, impact investment there and gender lens investing, which I really want to get onto in a moment. Um, but before we do that, I think uh, I think what you've just described there makes a lot of sense as to why investing in women is focused on the formal sector. And I think practically trying to um, influence the informal sector, um, I mean, it, it would be very different. Um, suffice Mm. to say Um, I spent most of April of this year in Myanmar and I loved it Um, and uh, something I noticed though is is being somewhat of an emerging economy when compared to somewhere like Vietnam um, you know corporations are still kind of finding their feet there in in my view Um, so what's it like working somewhere in Myanmar where the entire corporate sector um 
particularly the corporate sector that engages with the Western world, is still somewhat in its infancy. How how do you work in an environment like that to change gender norms? I'm really sensitive about how I, as an Australian, describe um, other countries and it should be their voices we're amplifying, not my voice, and I'm not pretending to sit here in judgment on those countries. So I think the business coalition that we're working with in Myanmar is really dynamic and exciting. Um, So as Myanmar's economy opened up, and it is a very recent phenomenon, um, the Domestic companies, by the way, we're working primarily with domestic companies. So we recognise that multinationals already have a lot of these policies in place. And we think the real change in these countries comes when domestic private sector um, adopts these changes. So although there's a few in some of our business coalitions, multinationals, it is primarily the domestic private sector. And in Myanmar, as the economy opened up, um, I mean, Companies are hungry for foreign investment and there's a, a clear recognition that the their business approaches need to change if companies are to attract foreign direct investment. And so, you know, there's been a, a terrific initiative there on transparency uh, and business transparency um, and I'm just sorry the, no, the name of the institute um, just eludes me Vicky Bowman is the person who's leading that but they've with a very dynamic uh, team and um, they publish a report on transparency and that you know for for the companies that aspire to be good corporate citizens and attract um, investment. Uh, That's led to quite rapid change around business practices. And we see that um, working on gender equality, uh, the the businesses, and we're working with, you know, six founding members and they've got other members who've joined subsequently, um, there's a real thirst to improve their business practices, to adopt cutting-edge approaches, and to and you know as I think there's such a strong realization that as the economy opens up, it opens up to more competition, and they need to be ready, you know, to to stay in business. And staying in business means adopting the best possible practices, and gender equality is one of that. I have to say that that many of the people who are the CEOs on the um, business uh, coalition in Myanmar have um, degrees from Australia, the United Kingdom. They are, um, you know, and I I only say that in that they're very um, open to, although Myanmar itself was um, closed, uh, you know, for for decades, that uh, that actually there are many uh, uh, Burmese who've uh, returned to the country or left it for short periods of time, incredibly dynamic, um, uh, seeking to really um, adopt the best practices. And of course, um, you know, for uh, some of the senior women in business, um, 
I think there's a great thirst to see better gender uh, uh, equality practices adopted more widely because the social norms in in Myanmar um, on gender are are complex and uh, do not really <laughs> favour women, put all sorts of barriers in the way of women. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, certainly. So uh, just in terms of practically how does investing in women support the business coalitions? Is it is it like you have a seat at the table at the, the meetings of the business coalition or do you fund them or what's the nature of that support? So we have been and we will again, we will this financial year, fund the secretariat entirely through a grant. We are observers at the board meetings um, and we have supported, you know, they have, you know, five to eight staff each within the in the business coalition. We also have um, a number of, of technical staff on our team who are there supporting them with tools and training to adopt um well, not adopt best practice, but to trial and test with their members um, different gender equality approaches. So we're, we're funding staff for the secretariat for the business coalition. The board of each business coalition is made up of CEOs of large companies, and we recognise that those people have a very busy full-time job already, so they need the staff who and the who will do most of the work what um, we expect from next year that our grants will start to decline and the business coalitions will sell services to the business sector to um, on gender equality and over time become financially sustainable. Our first, what we've done over the last couple of years is um, support EDGE certification in each of the countries. So EDGE stands for the Economic Dividends from Gender Equality. It's a Swiss-based foundation that has come up with a certification system for the private sector to become certified on gender equality. So here in Australia, we have the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, which is a government-funded organisation. It's absolutely unique, by the way, where the, the government is actually collecting all this data on gender equality in the private sector. But nowhere else has a has a Wajia. Um, and EDGE is something that is increasingly becoming globally recognised as a certification for gender equality within the private sector. So we've now supported um, 33 companies to achieve um, EDGE certification across the four countries. There's another six, I think, in progress. I might have those numbers slightly wrong, but it's about that. And that's given us some really interesting baseline data within the companies we're working with on the state of workplace gender equality in these four countries. And, you know, there wasn't any data on that. So it's actually really unique data. The way EDGE works, it, it gathers three um, pieces of information. One is a lot of HR data where, you know, gender disaggregated HR statistics, not only where are women and men in the organisation, whether they're in, um, you know, uh, corporate services functions or profit and loss functions, whether, you know, the senior, junior in the middle, but also 
you know, who's being promoted, who's leaving, who's being recruited. And you can see then, where are you losing women? You know, where, where are you losing men? Are you bringing women in in senior roles? You're only bringing men in in senior roles. So it's really important data. The second data point we gather is on policies. So what sort of policies do you have within your company that will support gender equality? The third set of data is a staff survey. Um, and uh, so that all staff must have an opportunity to fill out the survey. And it asks questions like, would you recommend to a female friend that she come and work in this company? Would you recommend to a male friend that he come and work in this company? So it's to get a sense and it asks, you know, do you think you're fairly paid compared to other people in the organisation? Do you think you have equal access for promotion? And we have that data gender disaggregated. We've now got survey results for I think it's 123,000 staff who've completed the survey across those four countries. So we're just in the process of bringing out a, uh, a big report on what we've kind of learnt from. So this that was phase one. What have we learnt from phase one about the state of workplace gender equality in these four countries? And that's going to help us really launch the business coalitions into phase two in terms of um, Okay, so what now are the most important things to do and what are the most important services and how can we support those companies that want to change? Wow, that's fantastic. And I hadn't realised the extent of the thought leadership that investing in women is doing and that sounds like such valuable data and, as you said, data that we didn't have before. Um, and, you know, you can't manage what you don't measure. So once you're measuring these kinds of things, I think it must contribute so much to broader effectiveness of programming and and policies yeah. and things. Well, you know, um, data matters. And most senior business people, when I go in and speak to them, do not believe they discriminate. And and but actually there are processes and practices within their companies that do discriminate in one way or another. And so it is when they see the data and I think it's been fascinating talking to people after they've done an EDGE certification um, and they, you know, everyone has their own perception about what the issue is what something like EDGE, and I think the Wajia data here in Australia is, is the same or similar in that it actually stops it just being your gut feeling and a few stats from HR. It is a comprehensive look at gender equality um, across the organisation. It's a really important decision-making tool for senior management in terms of, okay, how do I do better at this? Yeah, certainly. Okay, so that's the business coalition component. And then you've spoken about how investing in women also works with impact investment, which is a topic that um, we talk a lot about on this show. Um, so I think, could you just start by telling us what gender lens investment means and looks like? And I know that's an area that um, you, you talk about and write about quite widely. So um, yeah, could you comment on gender lens investment and what it means to investing in women? Sure. So there's a few different definitions of gender lens investing. And um, I think at the sort of 
um, broadest level, um, people will use the term to refer to um, undertaking a gender analysis along with a financial analysis of a business to understand the business's strengths and weaknesses and risks. So that that is one way to look at gender lens investing. There's been a definition that many people have used and been around for a bit longer, which is um, sort of a three-part definition. It's de- it's investing into women-owned and led companies or investing into companies that have a lot of women on their staff, i.e. creating more jobs for women. Um, or thirdly, um, investing into um, businesses that are um, providing um, services that are critical to women or girls, women and girls, women or girls. Um, So I guess those are the sort of two more common definitions. When in investing in women, we haven't got an enormous budget to put into impact investing. So we're trying to um, work in ways that we can make the biggest difference without a huge budget. We are very focused on women-owned and led businesses, um, and you know, accepting that's not um, the only definition of women uh, of gender lens investing, and it's not a co- even a common definition. It's actually a misperception that gender lens investing is just investing into women-owned and run businesses. But that's where we are. Um, but I'll go back to you, Rachel, in case you had some other questions on that. No, no, that's a really good definition, and I think. Um... Yeah, I've also picked up in discussions over the last 12 months that definitions of gender lens investment vary um, amongst your financial traditionalist and the sort of um, other players in the sector. I think how it's manifest is is really exciting. Um, so I'm interested in your take on you know how, how are we doing as a region? Like if you were to put together a scorecard, how is gender lens investment progressing um, and how do you see it going in the next few years? So, Rachel, I'm happy to say we've had a big impact. You know, we funded uh, GIN, the Global Impact Investing Network, to do a landscape study of Southeast Asia. That was kind of our baseline. So that came out a year ago and that looked at data from 2007 to 2017 and it looked at you know, that Jin has this amazing database of impact investing deals and they went around the region and interviewed, particularly in the um, countries where we're working. And that report is available on the Jin website, the Southeast Asia Landscape Report. And it's a really definitive look at how the region was doing in that last decade. Um, and it was pretty small. Southeast Asia accounted for, you know, in that report, something like 4% of impact investing. I don't, I don't think that's adequate. And um, very, very little of that was um, undertaken with a gender lens. And when we looked across the countries we were working in, I think there were, I mean, there were just literally a handful of deals over a decade on um, deliberate, intentional gender lens investing. Um, so in the last two years, um, thanks to the brilliant team I have working on impact investing and the wonderful partners we're working with, um, we've invested 
in 24, made 24 different investments into um, uh, women-owned and led SMEs in the region. Um, so, I mean, that is an order of magnitude change in terms of where we were to, you know, the last two years. Now the challenge is to maintain the momentum and where do we go next, um, I, I think, on, on those issues. But um, I also, you know, we've... Um, you know, we've been talking about gender lens investing in Southeast Asia in all the global and regional forum. We've brought um, experts into the region to talk about impact investing. And, and I'm happy to say that now Southeast Asia is I, I, um, the, the fastest growing region in terms of um, impact investing. And we're seeing huge interest in this region. And given it is such a dynamic region, with so much to offer impact investors, I think that's where it should be. Yeah, I agree. A question I have for you on that, um, the question that we often raise with aid when we're talking about the aid budget broadly is whether the altruism um, argument is stronger than the economic argument and vice versa. And I wonder the same with gender lens investment. When you're approaching um, an investor, um, and, and talking about how they might mainstream gender lens investment. Are you coming from a business economic sense angle or are you coming from an altruistic humanitarian angle or is it a bit of both? You know, a whole range of organisations call them impact investors and call themselves impact investors and I think it ranges from the um, I'm looking for a 20% return to yes, I'm prepared to accept lower returns um, if I can see a good so low, lower financial returns if I can see a good social return. So I mean let's acknowledge that that spectrum exists out there. The, we've We've worked with four um, international impact investors in phase one in as testing out how to do how to invest in women-owned and led businesses. Why are they a relatively small proportion of your portfolio? How do you do it better? Um, the, the trade that there may be a trade-off with social returns, but still expects to see a financial return. So no, I mean, look, um, in terms of government spending on aid, development, economic partnerships, um, you know, I think we, um, you know, can uh, see that many parts of our Australia's aid program doesn't expect any return at all. This very small part, we are taking a very commercial um, approach to it and we're working. We want to change impact investing and to get gender better embedded in there. There will be very good <clears throat> outcomes both for the investor and for the society if that happens. And so... No, we're taking, you know, we we are supporting very business-led uh, approaches. Okay, so to close, um, I think this has been awesome to understand investing in women better. Um, we've not gone into your very extensive background in aid, and I know that's not limited to care, but you've also had a number of roles in our aid program um, throughout your career so far. So I won't ask you to describe all of that, but what I would love to finish on is if you can just comment on where does gender fit into our aid program broadly? 
You know, I think I have worked in aid and development for, you know, getting on for three decades. It's a long time. And I, um, you know, started as this whole gender and development movement was, you know, certainly not starting, but pretty was strengthening. Um, and it's always something I believed in, but I kind of, you know, I would say that, you know, for many, you know, maybe for the first decade that I was working in aid and development, I just thought, yeah, we've put in these policies, that's right, now it's just going to happen. And then you really see, you know, it's strange, nothing's changing. I mean, we've got all these gender and development policies and nothing's changing. And, you, you know, I guess over my career, I have... Um, just seen how, you know, few gender approaches work and how often this is just something that's tacked on and um, the world really, I didn't want to be this old and still see how little we're changed for women, you know, I wanted things to move much faster. So um, I think, uh, I, I think, we need more cha gender champions, women and men. We need to um, uh, really be be a lot more serious on gender than we have been in the past. I think we've got to uh, look at you. You can't tackle gender unless you first start tackling it in in yourself and your own organisation. So I would say, you know, I think there's been some terrific work in DFAD under Frances Adamson um, and on gender equality, I mean, we have to really confront this at every level in our own organisations if we're going to be able to be advocates and champions for it externally. But this is a critical agenda. You know, women across the region and here in Australia graduate from university in equal or greater numbers to men. They go into paid employment in similar numbers to men and then they drop out and they don't make it to senior levels. And, you know, it's not just that that's wasted talent. Of course it's wasted talent. But the other thing is, because women and men have different experiences, we have different priorities and different ideas. If When women lead, they lead differently. When women start small businesses, they start different small businesses. Our whole economy is lopsided because 80% of it represents men's ideas. And I want to live in a world that, you know, 50% of it represents women's ideas and women's priorities. And those businesses that we're not funding, which would make a huge difference to, to the world, just need to be funded. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, you've put that so, so beautifully. And I'm very grateful for your wisdom and your leadership in this sector. So, Thank you so much for chatting to me. This has been fascinating and I look forward to um, watching how phase two of investing in women unfolds. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for the opportunity. 